Starling. While Clarice. Have the lamb stopped screaming? Doctor Lecter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Doctor Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And man, we we have quite the episode in store for you today. We are talking about the 1991 kind of genre-busting classic, The Silence of the Lambs. We are celebrating this so, so close to its 30th anniversary. But uh, before we do that, we're going to talk some movie stuff and some recommendations and whatnot. Now, um, we are recording this episode on February 5th, and uh, we are also recording this episode just mere hours after the the news uh, that Christopher Blummer, Plummer has died at the age of 91 uh, lived a long, great life. And when I say Christopher Plummer, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, man, just every time he was on screen, he was just electric. Just a real master of his class. Impossible to take your eyes off him. I mean, a true consummate performer, even in the smallest roles. Uh, you ever see Beginners? With yep. him and and you, yep. what a great fucking movie, man! And what a what a different kind of performance, uh, especially for someone of his age. Yes, I I, I loved it. Absolutely loved Beginners. Uh, I know you weren't the biggest fan of it, but to see him in a Ridley Scott movie, to see him take the place of Kevin Spacey in all well, the money was, in the world, I'm never gonna get tired of that part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I, and uh, I love his little role in Inside Man. Uh, yeah. Of course, obviously, uh, Mike Wallace in The Insider, I mean, yeah. and the, the Academy Award win that wasn't, I mean, that's, come on, should have won. Sure, I don't even, even wait, he, he, was, he wasn't even nominated, exactly, yeah. so wasn't even nominated and, and should have won for something, it was just ridiculous, he is so unbelievably good in that, like, I... I'm struggling for the words to to really quantify just how I feel about this loss. I'm really gonna miss seeing Christopher Plummer in films. You know, I even love him in the little role in in uh, David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He genuinely breaks my heart in that. Yeah, yeah. I I I always think when I think of him, I think of somebody who's just flawlessly debonair. Just I mean, and whether or not the character is. He just brings about him such a state of, of like royalty almost. You know, he just is so, he's so easy on screen, and yet, and yet there is such craft and skill behind his performances. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
it's tough when somebody's this old because you know, hot damn, ninety one. That's that's certainly a, a long time to be around and to have been in as many in as many influential films as he was. But uh, obviously a big 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 loss to the the acting world and uh obviously have thoughts with his his family and friends but uh um wonderful actor it's gonna be yeah it's good the 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 world is less bright with oh absolutely I'm, I'm gonna have to find something good to put on tonight to honor christopher Plummer. it may even be beginners i mean that's such a great yeah. such a great role man yeah indeed indeed um so i don't i don't want to come out of the gate swinging too hard here but um, I, I spent the last week trying to watch, uh, I mostly watched stuff that was related to the silence of the lambs and whether that was another Hannibal Lecter movie or other things by Jonathan Demi. That's kind of where I was this week, except a week ago today, a week ago today, we recorded an episode on the rules of the game, not one of our longer episodes. So afterwards, um, we put Sophie to bed and we gave Stella her, uh, her little tablet and Melissa and I fired up. The Little Things on HBO Max. Oh boy, I have been hearing not so good things. So, um, for anybody who, and this is not my recommend, I just want to make that very clear. Um, uh, for anybody who's wondering, uh, Denzel Washington plays a former LAPD detective who now is like a sheriff's deputy somewhere upstate. And um, there's like an unsolved case that happened up there and he has to go down to LAPD to get some piece of evidence. And he gets kind of wrangled into uh, an ongoing case of murders uh, that Rami Malek as the sort of lead detective um, is he's currently uh, undertaking. And and so Denzel gets roped into staying and, and trying to help. And he's trying to almost like, you know, right or wrong from years ago. There was this incident in which uh, he, he had to leave the force over and um, and uh Jared Leto is in this movie. Now, Jared Leto, and this is not even necessarily a tease, but I'll phrase it this way, may or may not be a killer. Um, and he is, I mean, Jared Leto, if he does nothing else, he fucking goes for it. He goes for it so much that not just the Golden Globes, but the Screen Actors Guild, a guild of actors, mind you, have decided that his performance in the little thing is 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 nomination worthy. Um, now I don't think you've seen the film yet, but in terms of what you've read and what you've heard, how do you, how do you feel about that? I'm I'm gonna guess that it's uh, that it's not all it's cracked up to be. I I don't know, man. The little things is just when I when I see the cast, I'm I'm excited. But then when I see that it's directed by John Lee Hancock. I I couldn't fucking care less. Like talk sure. about like uh like every single one of his films just lessons in mediocrity. Well, I mean maybe and- like the one exception maybe being the founder, but even the founder kind of outstayed its welcome. The the thing about the movie is that um and I don't know it's it's really interesting because it start it when the movie starts, uh, there's a, just a one little like title card, and it says 1991, uh, thus kind of placing us, you know, pre-digital age, right? And so I don't know, I don't know how important that is to the movie, other than as a, as sort of a police procedural, they can't rely on like security cams and cell phone, you know, triangulating a signal and stuff. It's, it's kind of just nose to the grindstone, waiting in cop cars with coffee, waiting to see what's going to happen next. Um, 
it's just one of those things where it, a, a couple, I mean, a couple of things struck me. One, Denzel is just Denzel, right? And he he brings it in whatever he does. Two, I'm sorry to say it, Rami Malek is just exceedingly overrated. In, 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 and I haven't seen Mr. Robot, but of the other things I've done, hot damn. Anybody who like bought Rami, Rami Malek's stock, I think is watching it fucking dip right now. He's, he's either miscast or just firing on different cylinders. He's not, I don't know what he's doing. Jared Leto though, like, I don't, I don't know if what he's doing is good, but he's certainly doing something. And uh, I, I don't know how much of the role is kind of was created by him or not, but it's, it's, here's the thing. He's not bad, but to keep seeing him like, like as a, um, as a point of reference, right. To keep seeing him nominated in these awards, but to not see Paul Rocky from uh, sound of metal is like, I want to slam my head against the fucking wall. Like, it's just crazy. I, I've, oh man, I've got so many things I want to say. Firstly, 1991, yeah, I'm starting to I'm starting to wonder just how much screenwriters going forward are going to use setting movies 25, 30, 35 years ago as a sort of as a crutch to be like, well, we can't write our way out of this situation that we've created, so let's just set the movie in a time before technology could get us out of these kind of plot holes that we've written ourselves yeah. into. Um the Remy Malik response is, yeah, I'm I'm in two minds about him. I think I think well, just remaking Papillon was a bad choice all around. But uh, I I'm still curious to see what he does in the Dustin Hoffman role. Um, what else were we talking about? Yeah, uh, Paul Rock. Sound of Metal. Yeah, Sound yeah. of Metal. Holy shit, that guy. I, I I what else has he been in? This is the first thing that I think I've seen him in. He's a I he's have, a theater I... theater actor, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm looking. I'm currently looking at his IMDb. Uh, apparently, he had he was in an episode of Baskets, uh, that um, that show on FX. Uh, he he looks I, okay. I am looking at his IMDb, and this is clearly a guy who just floated around TV for a long time. He was on an episode of Rizzoli and Isles. He was in an episode of Switched at Birth. He was in an episode of Parks and Rec. He was in an episode of Heroes and Scrubs and The Practice. I mean, th this guy just is sort of a, uh, you know, and I can, it's, yeah, I would say he probably is a theater actor because looking at, at the infrequent uh, postings on his, um, on his IMDb, he probably is doing theater, but... Yeah, yeah. Right now, I j I want Riz Ahmed and him to win actor and supporting actor of the Oscars. I don't. I've got blinders on to fucking everything else. I I would just love to see him get the nomination. I mean, I, I don't I don't think he'll win, because uh, it's not a showy part, and I think we all know that it, it's rare that a non showy part will win. But it, it's I mean, if you haven't seen The Sound of Metal, first, what are you doing? And secondly, when when Riz Ahmed comes back to the, 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 I don't want, it's not a camp, but to the, to the house. Um, I don't want to say after what, but when he comes back, uh, and has to have that conversation with him, it's fucking just heartbreaking. And he's yeah, so that, good in the scene. Just thinking about it, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It's that fucking good sound of metal. Best picture of 2020 hands on. I know I've only seen, well, I've not, I've not seen enough from 2020, but I, Again, I've got blinders on. I just I want Sound of Metal to just 
whatever it's nominated for just to fucking sweep it because it is as good as anybody has told you. It is fucking phenomenal. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if, uh, so in terms of my non recommend banter, like that's what I got. I don't know if you want to talk about the other nominees at all, but in terms of my portion of this, that's what I got. Well, we, we definitely can talk a little more. We can ask the question, what the hell is going on at the globes this year? Sure. In just a second, but I did want to follow up uh, a recommend that you had given me, and that was His House on Netflix. Oh, yeah. And fuck me swinging. That's a great movie. That, yeah. it, isn't, it isn't just a good horror movie, a good thriller. It's just a great movie. Um, what it says about survivor's guilt and immigration and, and asylum seekers, man, that is... It is a tough watch across the board. And then when it goes off the deep end in the last 15 minutes, like the scene where, again, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but where she, after decisions have to be made between this couple who have sought asylum and are living in this house where shit is going wrong for them on an almost hourly basis. Yeah. When he's just sitting there and he tells her the decision that, that he has made, I, whoa, man, it just, it floored me. It is so fucking good. Really, really great yeah. movie that I haven't seen any sort of discourse on. Yeah, yeah. I, I The only reason it even came into my purview was because I there's a uh, a YouTube channel called Cinefix, and they do a lot of top 10 lists, and they, they were doing a top 10 of 2020. And they and they usually do it by, like, genres. They, their lists are really, um, they're really well-balanced, and... They referenced a couple of horror films from the year that I had seen, thinking that those were going to be the ones they mentioned, including um, uh, The Invisible Man. And then when they landed on on this, I was like, what the fuck is this movie? And then I saw just a little clip of it, and I was like, oh, fuck, that looks good. And then it it totally lived up to, to – I didn't even have that much expectation, but it, like, it, it exceeded them. And it, for me, it definitely kind of affirmed that – horror films that are more than just trying to scare you, but are actually kind of kind of have a bigger point to them, which I think in a way the the new invisible man does as well. And I'm curious because there's another movie that the globes um, uh, nominated for best foreign film from shutter called La Llorona, not, not the curse of La Llorona, but La, La Llorona um, that I'm really interested to see too, because I've, I understand that it's kind of a, a horror film, but also quasi political. And so uh yeah, I, I think I'm finding like a new subsect of film that I really enjoy. These horror films with something to say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's it's definitely what the horror genre needs, in, in my opinion, because so many of them just lean on the tropes that have been lent on for 50, 60 years. Yeah. And his house, his house would squarely, again, I'm not sure if I'm going to make a top 10 of 2020 with the year being what it was, but his house firmly lands in there i'm just ballparking yeah. probably seven or eight in the top 10 sure. for me it's fucking and i it's kind of made the memory of invisible man fade not to say that invisible man isn't still a really good movie but no 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 i got gotcha. you this would make my top 10 where invisible man would not there you go well there you go yeah so as far as the globe noms i mean i know it's 2020 was a strange year i mean rules have been changed to allow for a lot more streaming options to find their way into getting nominated, but yeah, we have to deal with Hamilton. 
I mean, let's okay. So it's 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 best motion picture, musical or comedy. And if you want to get down to like the semantics of what the words motion picture mean, then anything's a motion picture. We could film this and put it up, and that's a motion picture. Do you know what I mean? But Hamilton is a filmed version of a staged production. I think this has opened a door now that can't be closed. I, you know, I. It's 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 bizarre because I I don't understand it either and I and I'm sure that somewhere within like the bylaws or guidelines of it like there's a there's something that it that expresses why like like it's for instance it's it's why at the Globes uh, something like Parasite last year or Minari this year can't get nominated for Best Picture Drama because that's not the way the Globes work that's just their fucking weird ass rule um, but this is and while I, I don't agree with that this is this is just bizarre. I, I don't understand this one. It is, I don't know if it's because of, of the service that it was released on, but it's like, I, I just I think I just heard that it's also, it's up for an Emmy for best TV movie or something. Like it's, it's like, it can't stick to now. It won't be, it, it it's not eligible for Academy Award nomination. So we're not going to see it there. I wonder too, if just, cause I mean, I will, and this is just my opinion, but like, most of the time when I look at the musical or comedy nominees, they're full of horseshit films. Like there's one or two where you're like, okay, like I'm looking at the list, Borat and Palm Springs. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I get that. Perfect. Do your thing. And then usually you get something stupid like the prom, you get whatever the biggest musical of the year was. And that just kind of, you just slot that in. But like, Hamilton makes no sense. I, and don't get me wrong, I'm on your side. I also really like Hamilton, but it, this just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, this is what I texted you. Isn't isn't this what the Tonys are for? The Tonys are th- this is this is theater. Yes, Call it anything it ex- you want, but but many plays, many musicals have been filmed and released in in various formats. Why why is this one now eligible? So I think the only and this is my like the. If, if it's not for this reason, then I actually don't have one, which is that Hamilton was initially supposed to be released in theaters. That was always the plan for this filmed version of Hamilton. Hamilton was going to actually hit the big screen. And then COVID hit and Disney Plus was like, fuck it, we're going to drop it on Disney Plus. And so I don't, I don't know if it's, do you know what I mean? Like because there was plans for it to actually be released in the cinema and because the Globe has different rules than like SAG or... Um, or the Oscars that it, 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 I don't think it's an open door. I think if you were to see more like coming, coming to the theater, this, this, this Christmas is a filmed version of the stage production of whatever, you know, well then sure. I mean, I guess if it's going to be released wide, I, I guess the globes can, that's, that's, that's something the globes can fill in there. But I, I, I actually don't think it's going to be that big of an issue to begin with. I mean, a musical like Hamilton that actually becomes a cultural phenomenon outside of just musical theater dorks, it's, it's rare. Um, and so I, I don't think it's going to be a big, a big thing. Well, I, again, I've, I've got too many responses. I think firstly, I mean, how is the Disney's plan to release it quote unquote wide? How is that different than what Fandango or Fathom events do when they show performances from the Mets, you know, with opera or other, or other, stage productions I, it's let's just call a spade a spade disney bought these nominations sure 
I'm I'm gonna be full on cynic. Disney bought this shit. There's there's for me there's no other explanation. Because here's the thing is I I I think you're I think maybe I am being slightly dramatic when I say it's a door that's open that can't be closed now but if it wins which there I think there's a there's a, a fair to good chance that it will then I think the door has been definitely kicked open. For, I mean, it could, for it, more nominations of this type. Yeah, I mean, it could set a precedent for sure. For sure. Again, I don't I don't know to what we, we won't know, obviously, until years down the road. But yeah, that, that'd be curious to see. I'm, I'm just I'm just being a purist. Film is film and theater is theater. Of course. No, no, I, I get that, too. I mean, imagine imagine the uproar if I don't know, Sound of Metal got a Tony nomination. Well, it's not a theater piece. So like, what's the fucking difference? <laughs> I don't okay, know. It okay. just I it calm, feels like an down, it buddy. feels like it feels like an affront. It's an affront <laughs> to my filmic sensibilities and I, I don't like it. I vote no on it. I'm going to write my congressman about it. Oh, you're you're going to you're going to write Rick Larson about it? I I guess. You let him let him know what's going on. Yeah, so I'm not happy. <laughs> But anyway, I, I love seeing I love seeing the nominations that Borat has. That's great, especially for um, Maria Bakalova. I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She is yeah. fucking phenomenal. I think that would be a great. It would be great success if she wins. Couldn't she, help and, myself. Well, and she picked up she picked up a SAG nomination for supporting I know, actress. That's, that's fantastic. I really hope this ball keeps rolling in in her direction because she is she's wonderful in it. She I think she yeah. is truly a revelation. And then what? Oh, what was the other one that pissed me off? Score, Alexander Desplat for the Midnight Sky. Not only one was the Midnight Sky the worst fucking movie I saw last year, but that score, fucking atrocious. I mean, that is literally one of the worst scores I have ever heard. If you want to talk about the John Williams style of this is how you're supposed to feel right now and I'm not going to let you feel anything different because we are going to assault your eyes and ears with this bullshit, that is that score. It's fucking terrible. Well, on, on the other end, though, you got two Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross nominations for Soul and Mank and then also uh, Ludwig Gorenson for Tenet. Like, I'm, I'm cool with those other ones. Uh, wait, Tennant had music? I couldn't hear anything beyond a blur of noise. Oh, oh, Ian. I love you, buddy. I no, disagree that, that, with you. I'm sorry. Nolan is a fucking moron for that. Oh, I, I can't believe. I can't believe people are being so conservative about the way my movies sound. Yeah, because we'd like to fucking hear them. <sighs> Fuck off with that. You're being too conservative bullshit. No, no, you fucked up. And now you're trying to cover your tracks. Okay, we listen. We have so much to talk about with the science. I, I know we do. I'm gonna let I'm gonna let that slide, but I'm I'm not I'm not finished with you on that. Come at me, Nolan fanboy. I will. I will. Um, do you have anything pre recommendation else that you would like to say? Uh, no, I I think uh, I I think I've alienated enough people for uh, for a few <laughs> minutes anyway. Lovely, lovely. So uh, I think I think I went first last week. Would you like to give us your recommendation first this week? I would love to. Thank you. Um, so I talked I talked about Horace and Pete, 
Great show. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to start that yet. I'm very, very eager to have a discourse with you on that show. I I did not, but it is still, it is the next like show I, I plan to start watching. Oh, awesome. So yeah, we can probably talk about it in a, in a few weeks then. That'd be great. Um, yeah. So we got to the end of the show and I'm not going to lie to you. I just, I couldn't stop crying. Honestly, I was just in buckets for a good 10 minutes like that really fucking hit me deep and steve buscemi as i think i mentioned he has a couple of moments throughout the show which really cut deep yeah um so we got to we got to the end of of uh Horace and pete and i was like man i'm really jonesing something like steve i want more steve buscemi right now yeah. And so I just, I'm casually glancing at his IMDb and Trees Lounge has been on my radar for quite a while because that's a movie that he also directed. And so it's on Prime as of the recording of this. And man, that is a great little hidden gem 90s indie flick. He really, really does not, it's not anything that's I think going to blow you away, but I mean, it's really solid filmmaking and with a cast that just will not quit you've got uh obviously steve buscemi is is directing and starring in it you've also got um debbie mazar in a great little role you've got chloe savengi uh you've got one of the baldwins you got daniel baldwin in there who is actually really good uh anthony lapaglia uh mark boone jr who people will know from batman begins and uh the motel owner in memento yep uh, Carol Kane is great as a bartender of this Trees Lounge. Uh, who else? You've got uh, Seymour Cassell. Really great character actor. Known for, yeah. I mean, he worked with Cassavetes quite a lot back in the day. He's got a small role and he pops up in flashbacks. Um, really loves him. And anyway, Steve Buscemi is this guy who is out of work, borderline alcoholic. Uh, he's had a bit of a rocky relationship that went south on him and his girlfriend is now uh dating his old boss who he ripped off for a little bit of money you know intending to put the money back in the till the next day that kind of situation and she's pregnant and it might be Buscemi's but it also might be Anthony Lapaglia's and it's just a kind of meandering wandering great almost very 70s-esque character study of this this guy who is just really just trying to make ends meet and he's a real sort of people pleaser while also trying to balance this as i said borderline alcoholism i mean it's just a great little 90s indie flick man i think you're i think you you would really enjoy it yeah i this is one this is a movie that i've i've heard of uh but yeah definitely definitely haven't seen and um yeah bushimi's under he's underrated so i would i definitely would like to check that out yeah, I, I I think you'll like it. Oh, I forgot. Sam Jackson has a small cameo in it. Nice, of course. Yeah. That's so. I that's mean, awesome. people people are just gonna keep popping up left and right in this thing, and like every ten minutes, you're gonna go, "Holy shit, that guy!" or "Holy shit, that's Mimi Leader." It's it's fucking great, man. Yeah, yeah, awesome. That's great. Um, my recommendation is gonna sound like I'm intentionally trying to tie it into the episode, but I promise you, it's not. My recommendation is Red Dragon. Um, which I watched again last week, and I really like this movie. Um, and for those of you who don't know, which we'll talk about kind of later too, uh, Red Dragon is a prequel story-wise to The Sons of the Lambs, still dealing with Hannibal Lecter, but instead of uh, Clarice Starling, it's Will Graham, who is the detective we're kind of following. That is played by Edward Norton. 
and uh, he is trying to catch the Tooth Fairy Killer, uh, played by Ray Fiennes. And I, and the cast is just solid across the board. I mean, beyond Anthony Hopkins and Edward Norton and Ray Fiennes, you've also got Harvey Keitel and Emily Watson and Mary Louise Parker and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and then a couple people sort of reprising their roles. Anthony Heald and Frankie Faison are also in it. Um, and a very young, uh, young Ken Lung, who ends up being in a lot of shit uh, over the next couple of years. Um, he's a great character actor. I, I, I remember vividly seeing this in high school. It was like I think this might have been one of the first R-rated movies I got to see by myself in high school. Like I just went, was like, I'm gonna see Red Dragon, and uh, I don't know. I think it still holds up. I realized that Brett Ratner is like, uh, you know, uh, a big old fuckhead, and we don't, uh, we don't a, like him anymore. A, a mammoth piece of shit. Yeah, and that's and that's cool. I well, let's let's not like him. Um, but uh, there's just I think I think I. I still like the story. I like I like this world, and um, yeah, it was fun. We actually we watched this, we watched it before Sons of the Lamb, so we can kind of just have the the chronology in mind. But um, yeah. So wait, I, hang on, I, hang on. I, you didn't you did you watch this? You didn't watch Manhunter? No, I didn't. I did not watch Manhunter because of something that we've been talking about off mic for a while now. So no, I did not watch Manhunter. I, I, I just checking. Just checking yeah, yeah, that you yeah. went you you went with the redundancy instead of the OG. Um. Well, when when if and when we do Manhunter, Man I might break your heart. I don't know. I don't know. I we'll I, have to well, I, I I know you will. I know I'm the bigger Michael Mann fan, and that's okay. Well, it's it's I I just don't like all of his stuff. I don't like all of his stuff. Yeah. Well, that's you know I uh, Michael Mann is to me as Christopher Nolan is to you. That's, I don't think that's actually a correct analogy. I think that that is uh, a horseshit to be uh, to be fair. Uh, so I'm not gonna let that slide. I, I no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna sho- I'm gonna shoehorn that right in there. You try, you could try. Um, anyways, though, uh, so so, but again, and like I watched a lot of okay films this week. So um, so Red Dragon is my recommendation, not just because I enjoy, but also because it goes hand in hand with the film that we're actually talking about today. Oh my God, I can't wait. We're talking about The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, directed by Jonathan Demme, written by Ted Talley, based off of Thomas Harris's novel. Now, we should probably just slow down right there. Let's Before we even get to the cast. So, what, so I, I'm, th- I'm going to take a second here. Um, what is your familiarity with the novels i have read i think four thomas harris i've read red dragon silence of the lambs hannibal which i actually the the book i really fucking like and i started hannibal rising but uh it's like the movie fucking hot garbage it's one of the worst written things i've ever read and i I I started to form a somewhat love-hate relationship with Thomas Harris at that point because I think I think at that point he had thoroughly sold out to the Hollywood machine as far as the Hannibal Lecter character was concerned but I also I also think Red Dragon Red Dragon was one of the 10 best novels I've ever read. It it genuinely terrified the living shit out of me. Yeah, I remember I read I went through a phase in high school where if I was asked to read an assignment or, or like, you know, over the summer was going to read something, I picked, I picked 
books that had had movies based on them and and not just because I wanted to make it easier on myself but because I was you know starting to want to know well what are the differences and I remember like you know in over the course of a couple of years like I remember reading Forrest Gump and uh Mystic River but and I read Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs and um you know obviously you 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 can never perfect a book to screen but as adaptations go pretty good pretty good no, no it's adaptations. solid and I, and I will say the the power of the movie almost overshadowed my reading of Silence of the Lambs. I, I feel like of of the sent like the three, if you want to call it a trilogy, Red Dragon, Silence and and Red uh, and Hannibal. I think yeah. of the novels, Silence is probably the least impressive. Not to say it's a bad I, yeah, oh, novel. I I haven't read Hannibal, but uh I think between Red Dragon and Silence the novel I'd probably pick Red Dragon. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I would highly recommend Hannibal. The last fifty pages of that novel are batshit crazy. Like, I mean, if you think if you think Ridley Scott's movie is nuts, the novel just goes off the fucking deep end into an ending that I'm sure most people really hate. But it it kind of makes sense, and I think after damn, it's over six hundred pages. Like, it earns it. I mean, it right. it that novel goes the fucking distance. Um. And so, really, and then just really quickly about Ted Talley. Ted Talley was uh, mostly a playwright before this, um, and and really, he, I mean, he all, he did the adaptation for Red Dragon. Um, that that and that's pretty much what he's known for. You know, he got his Oscar for for this, and good good on him. Jonathan Demme, um, <laughs> what a what a what an interesting, awesome, strange fish uh, he he seems to be. So well, he's sorely uh, he has, missed. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So he has one other film in the book, and that is uh, Philadelphia. Um, and I I avoided that movie this week only because again it's it's in the book, and so um, I rewatched a Demi film that I'd only seen once, and then I watched something I hadn't seen before. So really quickly, like a, just a brief Demi discussion with you. Uh, have, did you see Rachel Getting Married when that came out? I did, and I I own Rachel Getting Married, and I was intending to to watch that this week, but my work schedule has just been pretty hectic so unfortunately i wasn't able to i wasn't able to do as much research on the episode in general as i would have liked to but yeah i didn't i didn't get to do a lot of sort of supplemental watching the other movies that i i feel like i could round out a discussion of of the filmmaker with so i'm gonna have to lean on you and it's and it's been and it's been a good five or six years since i've seen rachel getting married but i was very impressed with it i really well, like anne hathaway in it yeah, that was that we we popped it in, and about about fifteen minutes into the movie, Melissa looked at me and said, "Are you sure we'd seen this?" And I said, "Yeah, but we saw it like, you know me, like I I tend to I I put way too much stock in the Oscars, and so when when nominations were rolling out, I made it a point to see it back when it came out, like fifteen years ago now, and uh, uh, so I didn't remember really. I mean, I knew you know that she had a something that happened in her past, and that she had some substance abuse issues, and that she was coming home for her sister's wedding." Um, but totally forgot the way everything plays out. Totally forgot how it really is just like a few days before the wedding and, and, and kind of putting these people back in the same room. And there were some, there were some uh, like cinematography cameras choices. I'm not totally fond of, um, but it, it's, uh, it was great. I, yeah, I think great performances across the board. Um, 
really, really kind of interesting because we talked to I. Oh, I interviewed Chris Banch a couple couple weeks ago in our City Lights episode, and Bill Irwin is in that is in the movie. He plays their dad, um, so it was really funny to see to see him in a movie so close after kind of thinking about him and talking to Chris. Um, but yeah, well, Rachel re- getting married is. Sorry, if I remember right, it's shot. You were talking about the the way it was shot. It's it's digital, isn't it? And this is still somewhat early days of digital. It's like 2006, seven filmmakers are still kind of figuring it out. So I'm, it's, I'm a it's... little, when it comes to the mid two thousands, I'm pretty forgiving. Like I had a, I had a discussion with, with somebody about collateral a few months back and, and they were kind of ragging on it looking like a mid two thousands music video. And I'm like, well, uh, yeah, okay. I see, I see that, but you also have to take into account that, you know, 2004, Nobody had really shot a movie who wasn't George Lucas completely on digital before, so you got to be a little forgiving of filmmakers kind of figuring it out. Yeah, I it, it has that, and I Collateral is a great example. It does have that that feel to the to the look. I mean, more like it, it it's quasi documentary the way that the camera, it, like the way it's being shot. And it doesn't always work. It's it's not really the 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 quality of the image. It's the actual the way the camera is moving through the movie. Just it. I don't know. I it didn't. It's not the worst thing, but it, it it's it it's stark. I think as compared to other things that he's done before. Uh, well, and that's and and Demi was was a filmmaker who did like to jump back and forth between features and documentaries. Obviously, he's very famous. I think he did like three Neil Young documentaries. Oh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, but yeah. I, uh, that was yeah, and I, I I know that he sort of uh, liked to to more than just dip his toe into that world. Yeah, I, I was as far as as filmmakers go. I mean, really diverse career, especially when you look at where he started versus where he was towards the end of his career. And I've actually got a little uh, when we get to that point in the episode, I've got a little uh, critical piece about somebody who was very much stuck in their ways and expecting a very certain type of film from. Jonathan Demi. Well, the only other movie is that I want to mention really quick is that I, I bought this movie a long time ago uh, uh, because there was a there was a boutique label that actually was uh, based out of Washington called Twilight Time. They went out of business and I bought a bunch of their shit. And one of them was one of his movies called Melvin and Howard. Have you seen Melvin and Howard? I've, I've heard of it. And also before you go any further, I didn't know Twilight Time was was local. Uh, they, their headquarters, I think was in Puyallup or somewhere down that way. Oh, damn. That I was, Um, I was genuinely disappointed when that label went out of business, even though, even though I think they did overvalue some of their shit when they, when they announced their last big sale, I did snap up a few of them. Yeah. Um, Melvin and Howard, I don't want to derail us too much, but that is a, a weird movie. And then when you, when it gets to the end and you find out that it's kind of based on a real, on a real story, it blew my mind and it, it really made me want to watch it again. Um, Jason Robards is in one scene and really does a great job with it. And, and uh, it's, it's the most fun I, and most I've enjoyed Mary Steenburgen in anything. So uh, yeah, it was, it's a, it's a weird flick, but uh, I don't know. Demi. Yeah. And it just goes, it just supports this idea that Demi really just directed whatever the hell struck his fancy, I guess. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to to see that now. I mean, those three names, Demi, Steenburgen, and and Robards. Yeah, I'm I'm in. Yeah, and St- Steenburgen uh, won supporting actress for it. It also won yeah. best original screenplay that year when it came out. So fantastic. Um. Okay, so I think let's move on. Maybe let's move on to our cast. 
Oh, yeah. Let's talk about this cast. So uh, if you don't know, let me tell you. Uh, Jodie Foster is in this movie. She plays Clarice Starling. Anthony Hopkins plays Hannibal Lecter. Uh, then we get Scott Glenn playing Jack Crawford. Ted Levine as Buffalo Bill or James Gum. Uh, Anthony Heald as, as Frederick Chilton, possibly like Mount Rushmore film douchebags. Uh, I don't know. Everybody has their own, but he, he's up there. Um, we have Brooke Smith playing Catherine Martin. Uh, Diane Baker playing her mom, the Senator Ruth Martin. And then they got a bunch of other people here. So I'm just going to list a few and you might want to um, uh, say out some others. Um, I definitely have to say Frankie Faison is in this movie as Barney because he is in all three of the uh, Red Dragon and, and Hannibal and this. Um, well, he's also he's also in Manhunter as a cop. Oh, is he? Shit, I didn't know he that. Is. That's oh yeah, man. that's awesome. He goes all the way back. There you go. Uh, Charles Napier plays Lieutenant Boyle, and um, I reference him because he is a Demi favorite. I think he's in most of Demi's films, um, or he's in a lot of them at least. Um, Dan Butler and and Paul Lazar play Roden and Pilcher, who are the I just call them the Bug Guys because uh, I don't really know. I mean, you could tell I could tell you their names, but that's really that's who they are. And then the last two I have mostly because they're they're famous people in small roles. Roger Corman has a small role as the uh, FBI director, and Chris Isaac plays the SWAT commander. Uh, I love that some other names, but I, uh, anybody else you want to shout out there? Well, as as well as uh, Roger Corman, you also have George A. Romero is one of the agents in Memphis, and then uh, producer Edward Saxon plays uh, Benjamin Raspail. He's the the head in the jar. Well, and, and uh, Ted Talley is in it, too, as one of the SWAT officers. And uh, other producer, I think his name's um, uh, shit, I don't have, it's uh, something Ut uh, is the oh, corner. Uh, Kenneth. Kenneth Ut. Yes. Ut or Ut, I don't know. Yeah, Might be German, you. so it could be Ut. Um, okay, so so we got through our cast. We, we've gotten through our director and writer. Um, in terms of accolades, again, we teased it last week. This is the second, or, sorry, the third film to win the Big Five at the Academy Awards. Picture, director, actor, actress, and adapted screenplay. It was also nominated for editing, which it lost to JFK, and sound, which it lost to T2. I'm quite all right with those losses. Um, I think that, that feels okay with me. Um, at the Globes, uh, uh, Jodie Foster won Best Actress. It lost Best Picture to Bugsy. It lost Best Director to JFK. It lost Best Actor to Nick Nolte uh, for The Prince of Tides. And it lost Best Screenplay to Thelma and Louise. You know, it's the Globes. Some of those are okay, and some of them are not as okay. But, you know. I, I'm not going to balk at all at Thelma and Louise. I, I think that is a no, genuinely no. great script. I was, that was more of a, a Prince of Tides reference. Oh, if, yeah, yeah. If no, definitely. Nick Nolte, really? Come on. Nolte? <laughs> you fucking kidding me? At the, <laughs> at the BAFTAs, it won uh, Best Actor and Actress. It, it lost picture, director, adapted screenplay, editing, sound, score, and cinematography. A lot of those losses came to The Commitments, which I haven't seen, but I know is a big film over in the UK. Um, it won the DGA. It won the PGA. It won the WGA. At the National Board of Review, it won Best Film, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actor for Anthony Hopkins. Hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was in 2011, which is coincidentally the... Uh, is that the first year it's eligible? Is it 20 years or is it 10 years? Oh, good I, question. I might, be, I might be wrong. I think it's actually 10 years uh, that it's after, after, after 10 years, it's eligible to go in the National Film Registry. So, so 20 years after the fact, but... Uh, 
interesting year. It was also uh, a couple other films that were inducted that year. We have Bambi, Al Mariachi, which is great. I love I love knowing that that is in the National Film Registry because Al Mariachi go. kicks fucking ass. <laughs> uh, Forrest Gump, uh, Charlie Chaplin film The Kid, and Stand and Deliver, which I, I Stand and Deliver keeps popping up on my radar. So I guess I I guess I better see that. Yeah, I I bought that for like a buck at, at a half price book warehouse sale just to have it, but I still I've not yet watched it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I heard I hear I hear Edward James almost is quite good in that movie. So I I really like him. Um, uh, it currently sits at number seventy four on the AFI top one hundred films of all time. Uh, I was sixty five the first time it made the list. It is number twenty three on the IMDb top two fifty. Which puts it between City of God and It's a Wonderful Life. You know, City of God is a movie I have to, I, I've seen it once and I I remember liking it, but I, I, I hear people talk about it with such reverence and I just I just want to watch it again because I don't remember really what happens in it. Yeah, no, it's been oh man, it's probably been somewhere between fifteen and seventeen years since I've seen it. Like, but I do remember it being quite a visceral experience. I know yeah. that there is some pretty shocking material in it. Yeah. Uh, it currently has a 96% critical and 95% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And in terms of just critical things, um, I just wanted to read the last parts of Ebert's review, um, which, which, yeah, I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I, I like the last part of it. I think he predicted the future a little bit here. So he goes, the weak points of the movie are probably not very important, but there are some. The details of Foster's final showdown with Buffalo Bill are scarcely believable. Unless you look closely, you may miss the details of how Lecter deceives his pursuers in one grisly scene. The very last scene of the film is hard to follow, but against these flaws are balanced true suspense, unblinking horror, and an Anthony Hopkins performance that is likely to be referred to for many years when horror movies are discussed. That Ebert was right on the money. And when it comes to critical things, when we have a movie that is this sort of beloved and is such an American classic and such a huge part of cultural zeitgeist, I do go out of my way to try and find a counterpoint. I like to find something negative. So yeah, uh, I've got, I've got quite a long review, but I, I'll, I'll try not to read it all because I'm, I'm just, I'm amazed by this review. I am, I'm mystified. I'm stupefied. Uh, this is from Was that a beautiful Dave... mind reference? Yes. Uh, this is uh, Dave Kerr writing for the Chicago Tribune. This is uh, part of his one-star review. It's always puzzling when a good director makes a bad movie, but the case of Jonathan Demme's The, Last... the Silence of the Lambs seems downright baffling. More than a disappointment, the film is an almost systematic denial of Demi's credentials as an artist and a filmmaker. Demi's deserved reputation as one of America's finest directors rests primarily on a series of warm, eccentric comedies he began with Handle with Care and developed through Melvin and Howard, Something Wild, and Married to the Mob. It's easy to understand why he might want to shake off the cute and cuddly image that has settled on his work, though his films have always contained a beckoning dark side an edge of violence and despair. Skipping down a little bit, Demi's greatest talent is his ability to find exactly the right gestures and details of appearance to quickly and thoroughly characterize even the most minor players in his films, giving his work a sense of human density and vitality possessed by no other filmmaker since the late Jean Renoir. Nice little reference to last week. 
Mm-hmm. It is particularly painful to see Demi betraying this talent in the Silence of the Lambs in the way he grants personalities to the victims we are supposed to care about. Brooke Smith, as Bill's prisoner, gives a particularly wrenching performance and withholds them from victims who are somehow less deserving or redundant the two cops Lecter kills. Most troubling is the way Demi caricatures the psychiatrist in charge of Lecter's hospital, hospital, Anthony Held, as an officious boob and then serves him up almost literally as the film's punchline. The intrusion, I'll skip down a little further, the intrusion of violence into something wild in the form of the gangster boyfriend played by Ray Liotta was an inevitable consequence of the dangerous freedom discovered by the characters. When the rules break down, all kinds of things can enter the system. In Silence of the Lambs, however, violence and cruelty are the system. The way the killer holds his victims is the same way the director holds his audience, though through threats and intimidation. This isn't the Jonathan Demi we know. I mean, I... I, I know that there are directors out there who, who in a way, want to fall into a niche, who, who want to make the same kind of movies, and that because that's what they like, that's what they enjoy. Um, well, shit, look, I, at, look at Clint Eastwood over the last 10 years. Yeah, but, I, but I, I think I so appreciate, you know, directors who don't come back with the same thing. I, I, I personally like seeing when, you know... I, I mean, for better or worse, I, I, I think that's why I, I always get excited for a Coen Brothers movie because I, I never quite know what the next thing they're going to do is because they never, they never try and repeat themselves. It's always something different. Um, well, someone that, who I was thinking about was Ang Lee. I mean, as much of his, yeah. as his career's had its ups and downs, at least he's never, he's never, as far as I know, he's never really retread himself. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the same guy who directed Sense and Sensibility and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, those are wickedly different movies. Yeah, and God, Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go, right there. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah, look at those three movies and tell tell me that they're directed by the same person. That's oh, well, that and then to go even weirder, throw the throw the Eric Bana Hulk in the mix, and oh, I I don't know what kind of stew that well, makes. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um. So, I, I, there's, so quickly, uh, the movie, here's what it's about, in case you didn't know. Um, there was a killer on the loose. His name is Buffalo Bill. He is uh, kidnapping women and essentially starving them and skinning them because he wants to make uh, a women suit. Um, Clary Starling is an up-and-comer uh, at the FBI Academy, and Jack Crawford, uh, the head of the Behavioral Sciences Division, sends her in to uh, basically uh, provoke Lecter, I'm not sure if it's the right word, but try to get him to help with a profile on Buffalo Bill so they can, um, they can find him. Uh, uh, Buffalo Bill's next victim is the, is the daughter of a senator, and so it becomes a bigger deal, thus really getting Lecter involved into the case. Um, but because of that, Lecter and uh, Starling kind of start to have this relationship where they start to find out more about each other. Um, I'm skipping over a lot because we're going to talk about this movie a lot. But ultimately what happens is um, uh, Clarice ends up finding Buffalo Bill by herself. And there's a showdown down in his basement. And she does save the day. Um, and Hannibal Lecter uh, gets away and uh, is going to have an old friend for dinner. <laughs> um, but uh, so I don't know. I, I maybe we'll just I'll just sprinkle in trivia as we talk through the movie, um, but I gotta start with the fact that could you imagine this movie starring and directed by uh, Gene Hackman? Well, here, here's the thing: is that Hackman wasn't gonna play the Lecter role; he was gonna play no. Jack Crawford, and in, and in that case, yeah, I could I could definitely see that. I think he would make he would make a great Jack Crawford. I think he would sure. do 
really I would do the work that we have we had come to expect of Gene Hackman. Yeah, I'm I'm not opposed to that decision at all. I'm I'm all for Hackman in that role, though I will say I I have I have two unsung heroes, and this is a, a good segue into my first one, is that my unsung hero in front of the camera is Scott Glenn. Sure. I think I think Scott Glenn it, it not only is it an is it the role of an unsung hero, it's also a somewhat thankless role. He comes yeah. in right at the beginning, and he's got to do he's got to do the big exposition dump, but he's also it's a different kind of exposition dump because he's also got to he's the one that has to set the tone for the level of dread that we're going to encounter throughout the film and he does it I think he does it magnificently and he's he's really helped along the way through that that great opening scene that he has through Jonathan Demme's use of his signature close up yeah that that very we've talked about that before I think we talked about it uh when we talked about the Manchurian Candidate and his remake of that and the great Jeffrey Wright performance in that, those, those, those performances that are, are aided through the use of close-up because the actor is looking directly into the camera. The actor is not only talking to the person across from them, but they are talking to us. And it's exactly yeah. what Jack Crawford is doing. He's not just talking to Clarice in that scene, he's talking to us. And we're, we're not allowed to sort of look away. We have to, to look him in the eye and process the information that he's giving us, which becomes a great device throughout the rest of the film, especially when you get into those later scenes with Clarice and Hannibal, where yeah. they become quite uncomfortable because we, we are forced to look directly into Anthony Hopkins' eyes, and especially in the scenes where he's down in that sort of dungeon cell of Dr. Chilton's hospital in those close-ups, we almost feel like we're inside the cell with him that like, the, it almost yeah. feels like the glass isn't there. Yeah. yeah the, the other thing about that opening scene with, with Crawford and, and Scott Glenn is not only is he doing those things that you just mentioned, but he's also, he's playing Clarice like a fiddle in the sense that the way that he is describing what he wants her to do and, and having seen this movie a bunch of times now, I was, I was really struck by he is not letting on at all that this is a ploy. And I, it, it just, it's, and you don't know it until you've seen it a few times, but it's like, it's, he's so cool about it. He's and not, not like in a, Hey, I'm cool. But like, he's just with such ease. Does he get Starling to, to, to chomp at this, at this opportunity? Um, yeah, I think he's great in the movie. I, I love Scott Glenn in the movie. I love Scott. I love Scott Glenn's career. He's been in some great shit. I don't know. I I would love to have seen him do Killer Joe. I I'm gonna guess that that was something phenomenal that nobody had ever seen before and will never be repeated. As as much as I love as much as I love the the Billy Friedkin movie and, and love Matthew McConaughey in that career resurrecting role I mean, seeing Scott Glenn do that would have been something to behold man and I, I you know what I especially love him in that I don't think he gets enough credit for is is training day oh yeah he's got a great great small supporting role on that yeah yeah and his he's, his back and forth with Denzel and the way he's kind of fucking with Ethan Hawke it's, it's magnificent yeah yeah I agree um, yeah, I, I love I just, him. I mean, be, even the year before, he was in Hunt for Red October, and even in that role, he yeah. just excels. He steals every goddamn yep. scene he's in. Yep. 
The only other casting thing I want to bring up just at the top is, is the idea of how, and, and now Jodie Foster desperately wanted this movie. I mean, she was so interested that she was, she was looking into how she could buy the rights, which were, were already owned by Orion. Um, and, uh, Orion was strongly pushing Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, and it seems like it, it, it got pretty close. Uh, ultimately it was the, the amount of violence in the movie that pushed her away and, and Foster who'd been, who'd been kind of hounding Ted Talley about it. Um, ultimately got the, the part. Did you, did you see who else was uh, considered? Um, yeah. So we had, we had Meg Ryan, which yes. I, I take, I take Michelle Pfeiffer over Meg Ryan. That's, that's nothing against, against Meg Ryan at all. But I mean, I, I am a sucker for Michelle Pfeiffer. She, she's fantastic. Actually, I just rewatched uh, what lies beneath for the first time since it came out just a couple months ago. And I, she's breathtaking in it. I have not seen that. Melissa keeps getting mad at me that I haven't seen it. It's it's good. I mean, that it's it's weird because it was a movie that Zemeckis made like in between like production for Castaway, where Tom Hanks had to lose all the weight. It's like this weird little Hitchcockian oh, yeah. kind of thing. That's right. But I forget as 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 a youth seeing it, you know, when it came out when I was like fourteen or whatever, I didn't grasp just how horny that movie is. Like yeah. Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer are all over each other in that movie to a kind of uncomfortable degree. But anyway, yeah. So I, I honestly, I mean, I love Jodie Foster in this movie and when it comes to deserving the award, I, I have mixed feelings about it, the accent especially, but I think Michelle Pfeiffer would have nailed it. I was also, I didn't know in, in the little bit of research that I did have time to do this week, I didn't realize that, um, Demi also wanted Laura Dern, but Orion weren't, it was kind of still somewhat early in her career. They weren't kind of sure if she could, if she could pull it off. But I think Laura Dern would have been quite an interesting casting choice too. Yeah. I, there's something about, and again, it's hard when you know, when you see it's, you know, cause we have, we have the, you know, we can look back at their IMDB and see all the work that they've done. Um, but at the time, it, it it just seemed more like within Jodie Foster's wheelhouse. Like Michelle Pfeiffer would have been fine with it, but I I wonder if she's I, I don't know how to say this, but I wonder if Michelle Pfeiffer is too attractive to be Clarice. Like there's something like there's something West Virginia homegrown that, about not, Jodie yeah, Foster. Now you're thinking like a casting director. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but like, I, and not the, I, I'm not saying she wouldn't have done a good job, but I just feel like there's something about Jodie Foster that just works. And again, it's hard now because I've seen it so many times. It just is Jodie Foster in my head. So yeah, I, I mean, who who else could you see in that role? Though I will, I mean, we're gonna I'm gonna pepper in some sequel, prequel, whatever talk as we go through. Uh, take me to task for it all you like, and it's nothing to do with the fact that I am a Ridley Scott fanboy though it may be too, I do really fucking like Julianne Moore taking up the mantle and continuing that role. And I do think it was kind of, I don't know, for Jodie Foster, maybe the right thing to do to say, look, I already won the Academy Award for this role. I don't want to do it again, which that's kind of a shitty way to put it. Like, I, I get it, but can you be a little more humble? But I, if you got to have, if you got to have anybody else, picking up the mantle. I mean, Julianne Moore's not a half bad choice. I, I think no, she does no. just fine in Hannibal, regardless of what I, people think of the movie. I, I, my only problem with her performance is we get her, we get her ugly cry so early in the movie. 
and she does it in everything. And it's just like, please, uh, I like, I love it in Boogie Nights and I love it in Magnolia. And then it's like, it's like in like these consecutive films and now she's in Hannibal and then we get it so early in the movie and I'm like, ah, okay. All right. I yeah, get it. It almost, good. It, it, yeah, it's a scene that almost feels like it, like you, ha- you had to do it, but also did you have to do it? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Anyway, Han- um, Hannibal is, I get it. Hannibal is automatically a twenty-five percent better movie if we get to have the Jodie Foster Anthony Hopkins reunion. It is, it is one of the great sort of. It's it's a, it's such a disappointment that thing that wasn't this this great yeah. moment ten years later that we could have had with these two uh, these two actors coming back together. Yeah. Um. So. Uh... So we, we talked a little bit about the opening scene with Crawford and Starling. Um, I do, and not just to segue, but also because I, I love, there's there's a, such a great cut where um, Jodie Foster asks, she's asking Crawford, what's he like? But then we cut to Anthony Hilt saying, oh, he's a monster. And now we're, and now we're at the hospital. I like, we didn't have that to see great establishing. Out. Yeah. Yeah. We just, all we need is to hear somebody else say the line. We see that we see, you know, the whatever the name of the hospital is. And then and then as he's still speaking, we get a close up on Anthony Hill. They're like, oh, great. OK, cool. I get it. We know where we are. There's a lot. Of, I feel like there's a fair amount, I should say, of of just letting the audience like trusting that we're going to follow along and just get to where we need to go. Um, what a shit weasel that guy is, man. Chilton is just a shit weasel. That is that is the one in Dave Kerr's totally off base and sort of oh i want the old jonathan demi back kind of review that is the one thing that i do think he may be that does sort of ring true to me chilton is not he's not a very well-defined character maybe he's not quite fleshed out enough he does i i get it when when he says he becomes a punchline i'm like yeah okay i get it I mean, I mean, I get it too. I mean, he he is, and I mean, in in the the sense of that's how we that's how we're taken out of the film, but in a way, it's like, I mean, not every character in a movie is gonna get to get is gonna be fleshed out. Sorry to say, we don't know a whole lot about um, Catherine in the pit. We don't know jack shit about her other than she's the daughter of a senator, right? Uh, but. It, we still we still get who she's she's the victim right and in a in a movie full of you know villains for lack of a better word like yeah Chilton kind of is one of them and he's opportunistic and he's very you know uh egocentric um and i i think that's all we need and like i i think I, and i think if you can't make the like the next leaps to who he is a person he's clearly a very sad lonely guy who is so desperate for attention that he, whether it's flirting with Clarice or how can, how can he exploit Hannibal Lecter for his own benefit? I think it's all very clear, even if it's not directly said in the movie. Like, well, that's, that's the, that's the flip side of the, of the punchline argument is that he is, he's that type of weasel. As you said, you, you love to hate him and it is fairly evident about how easy he is to hate when Clarice rejects his offer to go out on the town, how quickly he turns and it becomes all business and he's very, very cold towards her. I mean, that that in itself is a great character beat. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, 
one thing that I, as I was doing the early research for this and kind of reviewing what it was up for at the Oscars, that I, when I saw that it was up for sound, at first I was like, I was just kind of, it just was like, really? But her getting ready to go from the corridor to the, like the dungeon-esque hallway and all that prep and all the detail to all the kind of ambient noises going on. And it happens throughout the movie too, but that moment in particular, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. There's a lot of there's a lot of layers put on throughout the movie. Well, and it's it's her. Not only is it is a great use of sound design, it's also a great great production design, great use of lighting. It's it's a literal descent into hell, even as the lighting sort of changes to that red, which I I guess you could make the argument it's a little too obvious. But before we get to the revelation, or, or so sorry to the reveal of Hannibal Lecter, I I wanted to ask you. Do you have strong memories of the first time seeing Science of the Lambs? Because this is where, I mean, this will always be stuck in my memory. Remembering the first time seeing that sequence and, and Miggs going crazy in his cell and getting to Hannibal stood bolt upright, not blinking, ready and waiting for her. I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. And, and Silence of the Lambs for me is one of those movies like Alien. It's one of those things that was talked about by adults in sort of hushed whispers, you know, something, oh, no, no, you can't let the kids see that kind of thing. It was one of those, one of these movies that had been built up so much in my mind, it had a reputation before I even got to it. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was probably, I mean, I was probably well into middle school before I, like, I first saw it. Um, but I remember, because I remember um, what I used to do is, like, you know, I'd go to, this is back in the day when you could go to, like, a Walmart or a Target and they actually had a huge selection of movies to pick from. Um, and I, I remember because I, I, I was right, it was right around, right around that time I was starting to uh, get big into the, the Oscar trivia and stuff. And I remember like in the same in the same trip visit, I bought probably the three most like I bought I bought Patton. <laughs> I bought Platoon and I bought The Silence of the Lambs all on on VHS. Because I was just trying to go for, oh, those best picture winners. So I, I picked up those three. Um, because, I, yeah, I definitely heard about Signs of the Lambs before, but then hadn't seen it. And and then, as in now, I remember fit, like watching the movie and thinking at the end of it, I, I, I enjoyed it. But this is not a horror film. And can we please stop calling it that? Yeah, that's... That's an interesting debate of whether it is a horror film or not. I mean, and I I err on the side of of no. I mean, it's I think it's I think it's that line between horror and thriller can be razor thin sometimes. But it is I I see it more as as a suspense thriller than a yeah, straight I, up I, traditional I horror film. Be, I think because of how much we we follow the the investigative procedural nature of it leads me more to that same thing that it's a suspense thriller we're trying to solve a case right there, there are moments that are horrifying for sure but yeah it doesn't it just doesn't doesn't have that horror punch you know yeah, i mean it, it has its moments of of gore and it's and it's moments of terror but i mean it's the same thing with something like uh, taylor sheridan's movies which i've i reference quite a bit is you wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call Sicario or Hell or High Water or Wind River I wouldn't call those action movies even though they are punctuated by sequences of action yeah I agree that's yeah um I 
I there there are so many good lines in the movie that I I don't even know which ones I'm gonna say, which ones I won't. But I love the um, closer, please. Closer. And that's also got one of my absolute favorite character beats is once she does give him the the uh, what is she there? She's there with the survey. Yeah. The sort of psych profile. And before he even turns the first page, he licks his finger, winks at her and then turns oh, the page. I'm like, oh, the that wink is, is so good. That is choice, though. I This oh is God. this is where we have to address some controversy. OK, so one of one of my I mean, I'm sure as we went down the, the list of people that that were also considered for for Clarice, we have a, you know, a who's who of some of the greatest actors ever who were considered for Hannibal Lecter. Obviously the first person they went to was, was Connery, which that that's a very interesting alternate universe with Connery playing Hannibal Lecter. And I'm, I, I gotta say, I'm not opposed to it. I think that's, that's very interesting casting. And I think that would have been quite the challenge for Connery at that point in his career, considering the resurgence that he was having after the untouchables and red October. <sighs> Okay, so I don't Last I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this and I I feel like I'm going to I don't mean to offend you, but I I hope that you take this in in the right way. Um Sean Connery is not a great actor. He's a he's a great movie star. In a very he remind and that's why I think put like him and Harrison Ford, who I also think is not a great actor but a great movie star, like they they feel so similar to me. And like I think they I think he would have been fine, but like I the fact that they had like a classically trained actor do this role, it it gives it like that extra that extra something that it needed. I I for one think that Sean Connery would have been a terrible choice as Hannibal Lecter. I mean, fucking bad. I, this is fun. I hadn't even gotten to the controversial thing that I wanted to say. And already now we've got it. I just... we, now we have to stop and deal with this. <laughs> so Harrison Ford. Yes. Okay. Connery and Harrison Ford, they are movie stars first in people's mind there are two movies that i want to direct you to to change your mind on harrison ford the first one is presumed innocent and the second one is mosquito coast put those in the in the back of your mind on your radar hopefully that'll deal with that the okay. sean connery one is the offense yeah. you 100 okay. must see the offense that will really i think I don't think that it'll take him being a movie star out of the forefront of your mind, but I think it'll also help you appreciate the fact that a good actor was in there. He just didn't always choose to tap into it. But when he did, ooh, it was something to behold. To continue with the casting discussion, I mean, as I said, it's a veritable who's who of all the of all the greats, you know, all the people you would expect to see on that list it's Hoffman, it's Pacino, it's De Niro, which De Niro is probably the best of those three right? Sure and before I get into the very controversial thing that I'm about to say one of my favorite pieces of trivia when it comes to the world of Hannibal Lecter, of Science of the Lambs, Manhunter is Brian Cox who had originated the role in, in Michael Mann's Manhunter at the time that Signs of the Lambs was being made, he was on stage playing Lear. 
and when and when Cox was was playing the role, Anthony Hopkins was playing Lear. So it's just one of those fun little coincidental pieces of trivia. Yeah. Here's the really controversial thing, and I think you already know what I'm going to say. I think there are things that Brian Cox does in Manhunter as Lecter which are better than what Hopkins does. I. That is something that we can address uh, if we tackle Manhunter towards the end of the year. I have only seen Manhunter once, uh, about a decade ago, I would say. And I, I can't, I really can't make, uh, I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. And that's, and, and that's, and that's fair. That's fair. It's a definitely a bigger conversation to have on a later episode. I, I will just, the bullet points of it are this. I think the, I think he's, he's a bit looser in the role. There's a sort of, Hopkins plays him with, as, as a lot more callous, almost a lot more cynical. Which, which would, don't get me wrong, it works. I'm, I'm not yeah. taking anything away from that. But there is, there's a slight aloofness to the way that Brian Cox plays him, a sort of disinterest, a sort of... It's not so obvious that he feels that the person interrogating him is wasting his time. So I've just I've put that out in the ether, something to think about when you revisit Manhunter. Sounds good. But anyway, sorry, getting back to the amazing first meeting between Hopkins and Foster. Well, and and just this idea of you know, it's I thought too just what a what a strong choice to basically make her repeat what multiple Migs has has just said to her. But it but it leads to like this I think this incredible moment of, you know, I I I for one cannot, but he, he can smell the Evian screen cream and, and that he, she usually wears that, but, but, but not today. And I, the way that he's just constantly analyzing his situation, his surrounding who's in front of him. Um, I, you know, and I'm so glad that you mentioned the wink. It's such a, such a great thing. And I, I love when, Oh God, it just like, you know, when she, when Clarice is about like, maybe we could lend us your view. <laughs> on this assessment and he's like no 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 you were doing some well you were you were courteous and forthcoming and and then he, i love it he calls it a ham-handed segue oh god it's just so great um and, and god, you think you the... can dissect me with that blunt little tool when he mocks her accent which i know people have talked endlessly about but there is a reason we talk about it it, it is it is a great choice yeah yeah and and just the way that he probes her right at the end, you know, you know what you look like with your good bag and your cheap shoes. You look like a rube, and just and just like and like all those knights and boys running away, running all the way to the FBI. It's it's just like it, and the two and actually it was this scene where two things were very clear. One, and and I loved watching Anthony Hopkins uh, in some of the supplemental features in the Criterion, which by the way, shout out Criterion, great. Great restoration, great package, just all the... I, I honestly think it's probably... It's it's not talked about enough. I think it is a absolutely stunning restoration. Even, like, gray skies in this edition, like, pop. I mean, it's a... Yeah. From nuts... From soup to nuts, it's a beautiful restoration. Yeah. Um, but just watching him talk about the role and, and like, what he kind of chose to do and, like, you know... I think we, because of how intense the role is and what's going on, 
you know, I think we expect, you know, how this to be like kind of an insane, insane thing to work on. But he's just very much like, no, you just you show up and you say your lines and you have fun. You just do your thing, you know, and and just the way that he would. He, he said he said, know your lines, show up and get on with it. Like, yeah. Just, well, and yeah. you and you read your script 250 times. Apparently, that's that's his M.O. He reads that well, script over and over and over it's imperative. It's, I, I'm, I, this is what I'm teaching my students right now. Like if you're still in the script, if you're still actively thinking about your lines, when you're on set or on stage, you're not acting, you're not in the moment. Your, your, your mind isn't there. It has to be so ingrained in you that you're not thinking about the lines. You're actively thinking about who you are and who the person is across from you. And you're living in the given circumstances. And that's why even just the choice, they, the, um, about this scene specifically, Demi and Hopkins were talking about, okay, where do you want to be? Do you want to be lying down on the bed? Do you want to be sitting somewhere? And he goes, no, I want to be, I'm waiting. I know I have a guest coming. I'm, I'm going to be standing front and center, ready to introduce myself. And I'm like, and just like, those are the kind of choices you have to make. You just, you just, you just make them and you go with it. And it's, you get, and then you get performances like this, which are just, I mean, is there, is there a word for something that's beyond iconic? Because I feel like that's what Hannibal Lecter is. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's like I said, it's part of our cultural zeitgeist. I mean, the list of parodies and homages. I mean, it's it's probably as long as my arm and I wish it was as long as something else. Hey, can I ask you a question? This is a hypothetical. How would you feel if you had come flung at you? Would you be pretty pissed? I I would not be pleased. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I, I, th- <laughs> I have no other way to say this, but I think the restoration is so clear for the criteria that that's, that's like, I was like in, in like in years past, like thinking all the way back to my grainy shitty VHS, I was at first, I was confused at what had happened. Like I, I, I knew, I knew he was doing something to himself, but like, I didn't, it happened so quick. I was like, what the fuck happened? Well, as, and, as a, as a, as a youth, I know we both saw this years before we probably should have but like in my (laughs) sort of somewhat adolescent you know bordering on teenager mind i'm like he just said i bit my wrist why isn't it red (laughs) oh (laughs) why is why doesn't it look like blood and and then you know as the years go by and i keep watching the film i'm like oh oh that's that's terrible (laughs) that yeah that's that's fucked up and like i gotta and but the uh, so sorry and then the other thing though about this like this first meeting is Really, what a thinkless role Clarice Starling is. And, and and I only say that as compared to, you know, I, I know what it's like to be in a show where you might be the lead, but because you're the you're the like the main character, you don't get to you don't get to have the big chewy monologues or the big crazy moments, right? She does not get the I mean, this is a movie where we get to see Anthony Hopkins and um uh, and Ted Levine and you know, to an extent, like, you know, Anthony Hilda, whoever, but like, you get to see these other people have these big showcase moments. And, and I gotta say, like, there's a lot that Foster could have done to overplay it or lean into the dramatics of it. And the restraint that she has, particularly in the, in the, the final scene that she has in person with Lecter, where she actually talks about what happens. And I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to jump ahead, but like, there's such and I know I said earlier that that uh, there it's rare for a restrained performance to get a nomination, let alone a win. This is kind of uh, revelatory in that sense because there is no big showcase scene for this character, and yet 
what she's doing is is I I think really great. Yeah, no, the biggest moment that she has is trying to find Buffalo Bill at the end in in, in his dungeon. That's that's it. That's as big as she gets to go. And as as you yeah. said, as far as Oscar wins go, I mean, it's her. This role is kind of the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. And I agree. and and I, the other thing that's that's fascinating to me is learning that Anthony Hopkins was intimidated by Jodie Foster because she had very recently won for the accused. And in a in a perfect world, I mean, I I I bought a copy of the accused for this week for this episode and of course i i unfortunately didn't get to it have you i just wanted to ask have you seen it how i have seen she used is that an oscar worthy performance i mean i know she has to do a monumental amount in it yeah um (sighs) wow i i my the short answer is i believe so yes i i i couldn't tell you right now who else was nominated that year um but there, there's also some dialect work going in there. I think, you know, if you're looking at it from like an acting perspective, like she's doing a lot, the the haircut, the her whole physic. I mean, if you were to watch The Accused and then watch The Silence of the Lambs, you'd go like, wow, that's a big character swing. Like, good on you, you that you're becoming a totally different person. Um, and it, But it's, it is uh, not a pleasant film to watch. Yeah, I'm going to assume it's a, it's a one and done. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean... I mean, maybe, no, I'm going to not say what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, probably, probably. Yeah. Were, were you going to make a, make a crack about, especially in the times we live in? No, no, it wasn't a joke at all. It was more, no, no I'll just say, it was like, maybe it's something like I'll make my, my daughter's watch and be like, look, this shit is real, but I also don't want to scar them. So, so maybe I won't do that. Well, well, I would say at the age that they are at now, that's not advisable. Not right but now. Yeah, let's be real. Teenage, <laughs> teenage years. <laughs> yeah, teenage years might be. You know, I mean, I I advocate for young people everywhere seeing Re- Requiem for a Dream for. Yeah. You know, so uh, hey, why not? I mean, the accused. I'm I'm disappointed in myself for not having seen it sooner because it does sound like an important film. It is. And, and you won't, it's not like you, you'll regret it. And it's dated in its way. I mean, it's 1988, um, but still important. I think the message and what, and what they're trying to say is, is important in it. Yeah. Um, so I love this movie and, but I would like to bring up uh, two things about the movie that I, I don't know if negative is the right word, but they're the closest things I really have to critique. So I'd like to, and, and here's a good time to bring up one of them. I am so unclear on how much time passes in this movie. Um, so right after the, we get our first introduction and uh, Hannibal Lecter gives her the, you know, Agent Stalin, Agent Stalin is the whole thing where it's like, you know, look at, look at, look in yourself, whatever. And then she goes out. Then we get this training montage, right? Where she's running with her friend talking about codes and she's, she's doing the simulation with the, where she, she gets like, you know, she doesn't look around the corner or whatever. And then she's, and then we cut to the scene where she's doing the punching bag thing. And then she gets called in the Crawford's office and Crawford says, Miggs is dead. Yeah. And like, it was the same day. Like it very much implies that that is either the same day or the next day. And it's just one of those things like, wait, was all that train? Like, was that one day of school at the FBI? And it certainly could be, but it's not the only time in the movie where I don't know how much time has passed, but it also seems like only like five days passes in the entire, it's, do, do you have that, that, 
Yeah, thought? I th- well, I think I think this is the strength of Red Dragon, both as a novel and as as both films, compared to Signs of the Lambs, is that we have a very clear timeline. Like the the Tooth Fairy, he kills he kills on the full moon. So now we have a running clock. Whereas, yeah, like you said, Signs of the Lambs, it could be weeks, it could be months. We honestly, we honestly don't know. And I, I kind of went into this episode believing that my second unsung hero was going to be the editor, that it, that it was going to be um, Craig McKay. Yeah. Because there, there is a lot of playful editing in this. I mean, it did get the nomination, but I, I am totally fine with it losing to JFK because JFK is, I mean, that's a that's a monumental film from a production standpoint. Yeah. Um, the, the, like I said, there is a lot of playful editing, but there are decisions, like you said, with the training montages giving us a false sense and an uncertainty when it comes to time, which sort of, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit disorientating and there is one, I don't, I don't know whether to blame Demi for this or the editing or the writing, but to skip way ahead a moment that I would have cut. Like, honestly, the first thing I would have cut is knowing that the FBI are going to the wrong house because we see when they're up in that big military uh, aircraft, whether the C-130 or whatever the hell it is there, you see the, the facts and you see the face of the guy that very clearly is not the Buffalo Bill that we, we know he is. You know, they're going after the wrong guy. I would have cut that immediately because after that, we get some very playful editing with them going up to the house and ringing the doorbell and then the doorbell ringing in Buffalo Bill's house. And so we are, we are robbed of, we are robbed of that suspenseful moment because we already know the FBI are at the wrong house and that Clarice is at the right house. And so when the door opens, it's, it's not much of a reveal. Now, and that that is very unfortunate editing, or very unfortunate screenwriting, or very unfortunate directing, or a combination of all three. Now, do you think that holds true to people who haven't seen the movie before? If they are paying close enough attention and see the face on Scott Glenn's facts, yeah. I just, I because I know what you're talking about with that image that comes over the facts. I think the thing is, is that, and what I think what helps it is 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 when this movie was made. It doesn't look like Ted Levine, but it also it it also doesn't not look like him. Like I, it's, well, oh, it's oh, come on, the the guy is a solid seventy pounds heavier for a start. I, well, I don't, I don't, I, he has a I don't huge, think that's true. But he has a as, huge round face compared to Ted Levine, who's very gaunt. Uh, yeah, I guess may, maybe, but I, I, I mean, I don't disagree, but I, I, I just wonder if if. If you're watching for the first time, if you notice that, or if you get too caught up in the, you know, oh, they're outside the door. Oh, wait, no, it's actually, it's actually Clarice there. Um, but I, I hear you. I think that, I think that is, is a solid point. Which um, is, is, which is why my, my actual behind the scenes unsung hero is, is the cinematographer. It's Tak Fujimoto. Yeah. I, I don't think great... in, the, in the sorry, discourse, in the, sorry, in the discourse, around this movie, I don't think, and we mentioned it with the, the Criterion Restoration, is I don't think enough gets said about the cinematography. Sure, production design, you know, people talk about The Asylum, they'll talk about Buffalo Bill's Dungeon, but you you can't have it look as good as it is without Tak Fujimoto behind the camera. 
you know, um, my, my cheeky answer to unsung hero, which I'm not going with this, but my, I was going to, because Anthony Hopkins was talking about, um, those close-ups and stuff and, and how he felt bad for the focus pullers because when the, when the camera is that tight on you, you can't really move that much because focus pullers are constantly adjusting that. And, um, I've, I've done enough like commercial shoots and things where they'll tell me to like, they'll be like, okay, we need you to do this, but don't do anything other than this. Because if like there, there's people over there with the little focus puller adjuster and they're just like constantly trying to make sure that when you move, you stay in, you know, solid focus the entire time. And I guess I never thought about when it's that tight on you, even if you're moving like a little bit, like we're talking like an inch or two, they're having to adjust on the fly to keep you looking good. Uh, so I think the whole cinematographer, like the whole team working the camera deserves a lot of credit for what they did on the film. Well, I don't, I don't think you should say that's cheeky at all. I think that's a great answer. I think well, no, focus like, pullers, know, focus pullers in general focus don't. Pullers are. Like, I'm just being like, like, I just, it was like, you know, focus puller one, focus puller two. I, I have no idea. Well, I but don't, I, like, I don't I think like, they get enough love in general. I, I like my unsung hero, so I'll, I'll, I'll save it. Um, so then, uh, Clarice goes back. She goes back to visit Lecter, whose cell has now been reduced to nothing because Lecter is the one who basically talked Miggs into killing himself. Um, and that Chilton does love his little torments. Yes. Um, so this this leads me to my my second kind of issue with the movie, which comes in terms of the storytelling. It, it feels a bit um coincidental that Lecter just happens to actually know specifically who Buffalo Bill is. Does that not a, feel a bit like Yeah, there's there's a hand there's a handful of things that are very neat in the movie. One of them is a very nitpicky thing and that's the two bug guys being at the FBI graduation at the end. That to me is very like, ah, oh, happy movie ending. It's, it's very, very neat. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I definitely, I think in order to try and talk your way out of Lecter knowing precisely who it is, I, I think you have to say that maybe he ran in enough circles, he had enough patience to where all those people maybe it is i mean who knows i mean i don't want to speak out of turn as far as the lgbtq community goes i i have to assume that it was a smaller community in years past so a lot of those people may be running in the same sort of circles the same sort of pillars of support for each other i i don't know again i don't want to speak out of turn because i mean i think when we get later into the episode and actually start talking about ted levine we do have to address how the LGBTQ community responded to him. I think we should do that now. I think since okay. we've kind of broached it and we're, we're pretty much right around his entrance anyway uh, with, with Catherine Martin and, and him pulling the, the old Ted Bundy. I've got a broken arm. Can you help me please? Um, and Tom Petty on the radio. Fucking Petty, I know, right? I know, man. What a good time. God, I, I, God, every one of his hits is a fucking banger, man. It's just great. I, but, uh, I, I am my appreciation for Petty is growing in ways I never thought possible. Though I will say I am sick of that track. Oh sure, yeah, that's that's fine. 
Um, but like, so I, I loved how much, uh, the supplemental stuff actually, uh, addressed the, the issues that people had with the movie. Uh, you know, the LGBT community essentially kind of ambushing the Oscars and, and, uh, people were getting arrested for it. Um, and obviously it was, I, I really enjoyed hearing how, how Demi not only didn't disregard it, but took it seriously. And, and of course, obviously it's not, it's not uncoincidental that the next thing he does is Philadelphia. Um, but I think we need to talk about the Jane gum character and, and Buffalo bill because I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to do if I'm just trying to save a movie that I really, really like. But there is a line where Hannibal Lecter is, is describing uh, Bill, and I think it's, I think Clarice asked like, it, "Was he is he gay or transvestites?" And, and he's like, "No, he's not. He he's not a transvestite. He he's not. He he doesn't. He he basically explains that he hates who he is, and he just happens to be a man, and so rejecting kind of who he is." means that I, it wasn't I, I I am doing a piss poor job of saying the line but I feel like if you listen to the line that Hannibal Lecter says I feel like it's it it's pretty clear that he's not a transvestite nor is the role meant to be indicative of tr who transvestites are now we're I'm, I'm also talking in 2021 where uh, trans people are frequently in movies now and shown in ways that are not villainous and I get that it's a different time and that to see that character back in 1991, if you are a member of that community, probably really fucking sucked. But I don't, I don't actually think that he was a transvestite, nor were they trying to make a comment on trans, transvestitism. No, I, I don't think so either. I think, I think Hannibal Lecter's line kind of gives you everything you need when he says, no, he's not really trans, and he, like you say, he's talking about how he hates himself and is therefore rejecting himself. It's more about... See, I latch on to more of, of the bug thing. He's, he's obsessed with those death head moths and the transformation, and I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's tough territory as a, a straight white male to try and inject yeah. your voice into, and like I said, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I think... I, I don't. I don't. I don't want to take. Like you said, I don't want to take anything away from how that must have felt to see that portrayed on screen. I'm sure. Yeah, it sucked. But that's. Again, I don't think that was the filmmaker's intent. And and when Demi heard that he had alienated people, I do think he felt very remorseful for it. He's like, I, I'm, you know, didn't mean to portray your community in this light because we weren't. It seems like that community wasn't even a thought to them, not out of of spite. Yeah. But a mild sort of carelessness. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I really, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit only because I want to just kind of keep on this idea of who, who James Gum is as a person. And there are things I had never noticed before. And again, we, we try to get up maybe a bit hypercritical as we watch it for the podcast. And so there were so many details I noticed about the house this time as she's in there. Like, did you see how many swastikas were in his place? Yeah, that that I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of my major critiques of the film. That feels wrong to me. That that just seems like the production that seems like the prop and production department just kind of swinging for it going we need 
we need you to hate being in this house, and so we're going to have sort of subliminal imagery that is tied to hatred, and so we're going to paint with very broad strokes. And it's to me, it's he's not a Nazi. He doesn't have Nazi affiliations. He doesn't no, strike no. me as any kind of right-wing, conservative, fascist-leaning piece of shit. It's, I, I think that is... It, it's it's a it's a it's the wrong choice to have but swastikas see, see, in there. I I I I agree and disagree because I I because I think it, it's it's kind of unnecessary in its way. But like it's there was there was there was the the swastikas. There were the all the pictures of him with like strippers, and then there's also like this weird political propaganda stuff too, um, and all of those things in in combination with what we can see and hear about Buffalo Bill. It just it just reinforces this idea of this is somebody who it, it, it's so much about 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 change and and transformation that he clearly has no idea who he is or who he wants to be. And while yeah, I agree. I don't I don't think he's a Nazi, but I don't think he knows. Like I don't think he cares or understand. Like it's do you know what I mean? Like like I I wonder how serious the whole. I, I don't, I, 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 this is going to sound like a joke and I promise you it's not, but like, how serious is he about the whole woman suit thing? Like, how long has this been a thing that he's wanted to do? Like, I, you I think, can't, you think it's a, it's a phase. Potential, like, I don't know. I don't know. There's just so many, there's just so many, uh, that character is, is kind of endlessly fascinating because we don't ever know that much about, about him. Um, other than kind of what we're told about and then what, the, the little pieces we see throughout. But it's, I, I don't know. It, I, I just think it, it all leads, it all leads to a character who uh, clearly has had a, a shitty upbringing and, and clear, clearly doesn't know what, what track he wants to go with his life. Like just, I yeah, think I, the, yeah. It, well, if you approach it from he's, he's going through phases looking for, who he really is i guess it works in that sense maybe the swastikas are remnants of of a hateful upbringing but i would counter that with there's a moment that really really shook me with his character this time and it's the lotion in the basket scene yeah where where she's screaming and she's calling for his for her mother and you can see the pain in his face like that he is starting to identify with Catherine as as a person and there is there is genuine pain in his face and i think there's a realization there's a it, as fleeting as it may be there is a realization about what he is doing and that this this is her, what he is doing to himself and doing more importantly to the victims it it is hurting him in a way and so that's to me that's why that much hatred seeing those symbols of hate sort of rings false to me because yeah, he is a he is a deplorable sort of villain from one aspect, but that's this is the the great thing about the writing of his character and the way that he chooses performance. He is a human being. He does feel something when he hears Catherine screaming for her mother. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I you know, it's 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 a great thing to talk about, and and obviously like the you know the swastika stuff is like, do we need it? No. Does it does it you know? maybe for you doesn't add anything, but for me it does. And it's, but I could obviously do without it. Like I didn't need it, but it, it was well, very it, stark 
this time. It, it's one of those. It's one of those interesting debates. It, it raises more questions than it answers, and I'm I'm always for that. So if we have to have the swastikas, then by all means, let's have them in order to have a a more sort of interpretive discourse around his character and to, to build yeah. the sort of mystique and mystery of his upbringing. Yeah. Um, uh, that's why we're still talking about Sons of the Lambs 30 years later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and again, and, and to talk about the, the iconicness of not just the characters or the, some of the lines, but how about the iconicness of just the image of the death's head moth? Yeah, I mean, it's it's shocking. It's really shocking, very compelling, and I love when she's there with the two with the the the, the two guys, the two bug guys. Yeah. And their admiration for how well that this creature has been taken care of. You know, he's talking about somebody loved this. You know, they yeah. kept it in the dark and they fed it, you know, honey and and nightshade and somebody really yeah. loved it. There's almost there's there's admiration in their voices. Yep. For sure. Um, and, well, uh, and the dismissal between the two of them, that there is clearly a hierarchy. They're like, ignore him. He doesn't have a PhD. I, I love that yeah. little throwaway character. Well, and a moment, a, a moment with the, the cocoon that I, I, I wonder if you think it's too much, just enough or, 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 or not enough, is the moment where they take it out of the throat and we hear that last little sound of the breath seep out as they pull out the pod. What, what do you think about that moment? Well, I think there's there's a lot of dramatic license taken in that moment, but you know, it's 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 another great argument for it deserving that that sound nomination. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a really interesting choice. I don't I don't know that I love it, but I I certainly like the idea of it um a, a lot. Um, Definitely. So so and then you know plot wise, obviously, uh, Clarice goes back with the fake deal. That if you if 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 the profile that he creates on Buffalo Bill leads to Catherine Martin's rescue, that he gets all the stuff, and we ultimately find out that that's that's not a real thing. That Crawford rolled the dice, but Chilton, who has been re- recording the conversation, uh, kind of laughs at him and but makes his own deal. He reaches out to the senator, and they actually do create a deal, uh, which I, I mentioned this being, uh, this scene specifically because uh, there's a great plant where the entire time that Chilton's talking. Uh, Lecter is eyeing this pen that he leaves on uh, on the pillow, and that comes back into play later. So then we get we get a a a, a great. Um, I I love when Lecter and the senator meet. That is such a unique, crazy scene. That's that's one of those moments. I think I I can almost feel it. I think they knew how good the writing was when they were shooting that. That feels like, and not in a sort of self-congratulatory way, this is like, this is an amazing scene and we need to give it everything. Like there is, yeah. the, the actress playing the senator, she is the genuine shock and discomfort in her and the playfulness of like, like he know what does he have to lose? Fuck it. Oh my God. It's a true. Breastfeeding and yeah, yeah. Toughened tough your, your nipples. Like, oh God. It's just, it's just grotesque. It's, but it's not, it's. It's just grotesque enough. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. feel like yeah. it overplays its hand too much. And there's a, and like I said, I mean, it's a great fuck you moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I love, I love that it ends with love your suit. That's just great. Um, yeah. Lovely little my, tag. And then we get to 
one of my favorite sets in any movie is oh. that the cell that they construct inside yeah. City Hall or, or wherever it is. Is it is City Hall? I think it's some sort of... Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Justice Department building or something, but yeah, the the how quickly the relationship is established between him and the two cops that he's going to eventually kill. There's a, there's a line where later on the one cop is like son of a bitch wanted a second dinner, you know, after yeah. the conversation with cause not only because Clarice has planted in his head the story about the screaming of the lambs, but because this is his opportunity. Yeah. Um so I mean the 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 quid pro quo scene there at that cell uh is so good. It the and how simple the camera work is and we're just watching him tell tell these stories and and it's just it's really good and I love the the little detail where Chilton comes in and and, and he sends her away and he gives back the file. And that little finger rub, that little finger rub as he hands the file back to Clarice. That's it. I mean, that's there with that little wink that he does. I mean, that's that moment coming full circle. Um, and so there, there's two. So the. Oh, OK, I'll say this part first. I think one of the things that is going to like the, one of my favorite things about this movie is how the title of the movie is constantly alluded to but never said I fucking love it. Have the lambs stop screaming the screaming of the lambs, but never, they never say the silence of the lambs. It's, ah, it's so good. It's well, because so it, it leaves good. you wanting it dances around it. You almost yes. want them to say it and they won't, they won't give it to you. Oh, it's so good. But this moment, this, you meant the, this second dinner. And I'm, I know I'm going to, the second dinner to the revelation inside the ambulance is like 10 or 12 of the best minutes in cinema fucking ever. And you, we talk about, we mentioned the, the sort of editing of, uh, you know, the, the FBI's at the wrong house and Clarice is actually at Buffalo bills. I, and we talk about going back and watching moments for the first time. I, I really, I, I want to say, I, or hope that my mind was blown when, it's actually him in, in the in the ambulance. Oh, I can me- I, I can tell you mine was. It's I was it's shocked, so like jaw good. on the floor. Couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah, I. Uh, and it's it's all it's all played so. It's just the way that everything happens. It's it's so precise and, you know, such, again such another iconic shot of the camera lifting up after he's he's killed the first cop who's chained to the. Uh, to the bars ready ready when you are sergeant pembry but he's like he's like conducting a little bit because the music comes up um i don't know man i i was wondering like if i was gonna have um a favorite like shot or scene or what i would pick scene wise this this stretch of time in the movie is easily my favorite part of the movie i think it's oh absolutely it's it's great Um, which is also another reason why i couldn't go with editing as as my unsung hero because you you go from like you said some of the best 10 or 12 minutes in american film to back back to the very procedural nature of the film and i think the film i i don't know what i would cut because i think we need all of clarice's going back to the original because obviously we need to go back to the site of the first murder and we and we need 
He covets. Yeah, he covets. We need to get back to that. That's that's the only way we're going to get to Jame Gum. But one yeah. when you when you contrast the two sequences of film, like the pacing is so radically different that it, it it kind of pulls the rug out from under you a little bit. Um, can I can I tell you what who my unsung hero of uh, the movie is? Let's do it. Howard Shore. I was wondering if you were going to say that. I because I, I actually I really respect the score a lot. Me. I Me really too. like this score. I I do. I think there are a couple moments where it goes a li- uh, it's a little heavy-handed here or there in some places, but for the most part, it's it's a very uh, it's a very serviceable score. Yeah, like I, it, it it just it it seems to propel the momentum, especially in the in his escape sequence. It does yeah. some wonderful work there. And I and I and I think I say that too because I think I think our four main performers in the movie. I think they all get sung fairly well. I mean, I do think I think um, Scott Glenn has a a particularly thankless role of the four, but you know it's Scott Glenn doing this role. I think I think he you know and Demi also obviously won and Ted Talley obviously won and and you're right. I don't think enough people talk about Tak Fujimoto, but he obviously went on to do a bunch of stuff with Demi too, and and Craig McKay got nominated. But like, I don't know. Like, I'm not a big fan of Howard Shore scores. Like, just I just. I think they're usually a bit bit too much in the movies that they're in, but I think it's. I'm while I'm looking at the Lord of the Rings, man. Like, oh, some of that stuff, I I could really do without a lot of the music in Lord of the Rings. I could do without the Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yes. That, and I and I realize I'm in the minority on that one, and I well, I'm I, just I, fine. I I I think I heard the sound of us losing followers. <laughs> oh fuck. <laughs> You oh, very, I I think I heard the door just very gently close. <laughs> oh shit! Well, I guess it was fun doing this podcast with you for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah. I just, I really, I really like uh, the the score in the movie, and I think it, it, I think it plays really well as as we go through it. Um, you know what another underrated Howard Shore score is? What's that? Gangs of New York. There, I said. Oh, it. I didn't know that was him. But That's yeah. I'm, I'm like putting it out there. there. It's a good score. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um. So then, yeah, we get her. We get Clarice going back and sort of retracing the steps. The first victim, uh, Frederica Bimmel, and and uh, and I, I, I. This is something I, I saw in one of the. I think it, I forget one of the one of the extra interview supplemental things with the Criterion, but they they mentioned how important it is that Clarice, you know, that, that, that it's a woman doing this because there are things coming from a perspective that's different from, from a male perspective, particularly a very like male dominated FBI police sort of mentality. And the way that she's able to look around the bedroom and the way that she sort of break, not breaks into, but like cracks open the, um, the jewelry box and finds the photos and the, she's asking the kind of questions and probing in certain ways that maybe a, a guy wouldn't do and that's and I, I also love this idea of like I think somebody one of the producers was talking about how this was sort of like what Top Gun did for the Navy. This was the FBI trying to show that yeah women can be in the FBI because apparently they were going through a a big like we do not have any women it, it, training to be in the FBI and so they they saw Clarice as a vehicle to be like yeah let's yeah please you can do it too let's get involved. Um, Absolutely and I'm and I'm glad you brought up the music box specifically because yeah you're right a guy probably wouldn't think to check there because i mean most guys i'm assuming don't have music boxes and so 
you wouldn't think of that as somewhere to stash those kind of racy Polaroids. But Clarice, as a young girl, she probably had one and she knew that, oh, the back comes off and I can hide some. I can have my secret sort of like this is where I stash something that's important and precious to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and yes, then we get the cross cutting, but then ultimately we get her um, we get her at Buffalo Bills. And that's sort of like the last big climactic moment of, of the movie. Um, and also and a, one, lot- a delivery delivery of one of just not only one of the worst lines ever, but the way he delivered it. Was, oh, was she a great big fat person? Yeah, yeah, not a, but <laughs> not I mean, a great line, but, but his delivery of it is something else. Yeah, there are there are despicable people in the world, you know, and that's this is one of them. I know, I know we've talked quite a bit about Buffalo Bill, the character, but Ted Levine, I don't know about you, man. This is one of those roles that I saw just young enough, and it ingrained itself so deeply in my mind that I, it's, it's a prejudice, it's, it's, it's my own fault. Anytime I see Ted Levine, I can't, I see the tuck. I, I can't yeah. help it. It's always going to be there. I, I cannot unsee that. I, I have there is never there will never be a reality where I have not seen that image and that a, that is Ted Levine even in even it, in something like the fucking first Fast and Furious movie yeah like no, uh, it's, dude, it's a it's a blessing and a curse it's it's the yeah. it's if you get success at a certain point in your career it can and, and Ted Levine talked about that like it was it was so hard for him to get roles as like fathers or respectable people after doing it um and and honestly, it's happening so much more. It, it's it's so much more pervasive in commercials. Uh, I reference specifically. I, I don't know what her name is in real life, but Flo from Progressive. She she's an actress. Like I think she's in. I think she's in one of the first two episodes of Mad Men. Um, but now she's Flo, right? I, if she wants to ever be an, an actor again, it's not going to happen because she's Flo. And like for for Ted Levine, I mean, he has been great in other things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I. I think one of his most underrated performances, because I think it's only one scene really, is Shutter Island. He is he is scary as all in a different way. He's scary in that movie, but he, I mean, he, you know, it's one of those things where like, when when this famous actor dies, what's going to be the the first? What's going to be the film that's right next to it in parentheses? And if for Ted Levine, it's it's going to be The Signs of the Lambs. Well, I didn't I didn't even have to read the headline or, or see the article but you know we talked about christopher Plummer at the beginning of this episode you knew it was going to be the sound of music yeah for sure there's no way in fucking hell it wasn't going to be and yeah like you said ted levine you know on the unfortunate day when that happens it's going to be ted levine star of science of the lambs yeah yeah um which again so i mean I wanna... worst worst things to have in your obituary i guess oh, for sure exactly exactly um so there's there's commonly one of those like this could never happen things that happens in this scene that I just I just don't give a shit about. So I'd like to just can we let's talk about it for like 20 seconds and then let's not talk about it again. You ready? Here we go. When he has the night vision goggles on, um, when we see Clarice, there are shadows being uh, shadows of her on the wall, which if it were dark there wouldn't be shadows and clearly however they shot it there were i could give a fuck less about it because i understand that he's got night vision goggles on and that the thought is that it's dark down there uh there i said my piece i don't give a shit about it if, if you're that yeah. nitpicky about something you can go fuck yourself yeah all those all those continuity nerds get a fucking life do something else with yeah. your life get um, a hobby the the I want to I want to go back to talking about the Criterion restoration for a second because there's a there's a moment 
where one of the moths lands and you can clearly see the string around it. Like there was a moth wrangler on the set and one kind of falls into frame and you can see the like the little fishing line or whatever around it. I've never actually seen it before, but this time through I was like, oh man, that that moth has got something tied around it and it it's pretty fucking obvious. <laughs> that guy, he's got a... That guy's got to have that on his resume, right? I was the moth wrangler on Science of the Lambs. That's something they, that they, he is he is definitely proud of. And they talked to him and for a be. good six minutes in that that making of documentary. Man, he he got his he got his next fifteen minutes on the making yeah, of. And good for him, man. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's so funny that I I think. I think this scene gets a lot of play in terms of the iconicness of the movie, but I think I think after having watched it so many times, after having what feels like the the most climactic moment with Lecter's escape, this feels like a like a second ending, and it's still good. But I'm not as. I'm. I mean, it's still tense when she's in the dark and stuff. But finding finding Bimmel and the or not Bimmel finding uh, Martin and the. Um, in the, in like the little well thing and all that, like it's, it's all fine, but I, I, I feel like I got my ending and now I either, it need, we need to speed up to the, like the, um, the stuff in the dark because it's, I just, I don't know. Like, I feel like I had my ending and that's, that's, I don't even want to say that's a nitpick cause I, I, it doesn't really even bother me, but I, I just am so enamored with that stuff in the cell and escaping and the ambulance that I, it just seems to kind of slow down a little bit at the end. Yeah, no, I, I, like I said, I feel like there is an imbalance in the pacing in the last twenty minutes. But again, I don't, I don't know exactly what I would cut because I do, I do really like everything down in the dungeon. One thing that I guess maybe I, I saw on early viewings, but I, I paid no attention to is that's probably Mrs. Lipman dissolving in acid in that bathtub. Oh, I think it, I think it has to be right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't know, but uh, that's, I think that's the vibe that I got. And I, I, I had there's a couple of things where I'm like again, I don't I don't know if that I would cut them, but there's like, do we need the flashbacks? Do we need to see the woman's suit? Can we not just have Clarice's reaction to it? I don't I don't necessarily think that it's gratuitous, but I don't I don't know that we need it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um and then I guess just just I mean to you know, so she Clarice kills Bill and uh, kill Bill. Hey, look at that. Um, and yeah, yeah, let's not. Let's not. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, and then she, we cut to obviously some time later and she's graduating and, and uh, Crawford's there and he doesn't like these things. So he, he slinks out and Clarice gets a call from Hannibal who has tracked down Chilton and uh, gives, gives one of those great, another great line. I'm going to have an old friend for dinner and we basically end with him stalking him down the streets and then credits credits roll and we I think we pretty much we pretty much went beat for beat on the movie no yep, yeah yeah definitely something i don't think we've done in a while on this show but definitely worth it for this movie yeah yeah i would i would agree because i mean i i enjoyed sharing a lot of the little things that i love about this film and i loved hearing about all the little things that you picked up on on this viewing it was nice to sort of see what we we do and don't appreciate about the film it was uh, it was a fun discourse yeah, for sure. For sure. And and hopefully we added something to I'm sure the many, many podcasts that have been done on this film. 
I know. Very true. Very true. And it's, it's, I mean, I listen to a fair amount of film podcasts and I, I, you know, where we are coming up on like exactly on the 30th anniversary of the Silence of the Lambs. And I haven't seen any play on it. So, you know, if we can be one of the few that you listen to on the, on the 30th anniversary of, of this film, you know, good on you. Um, uh, hopefully I would like to think that some people spend their Valentine's day listening to this show because I mean, yeah. it's a made up bullshit holiday anyway. And I think it was a genius idea to, to drop this film. That's, that's when it was released. It was the, yep. the, the big Valentine's day weekend release. And I love when cheeky little things like that happen, like Wolf of Wall Street being the big Christmas Day release. Like, that's that's not a Christmas movie, but fuck it. I'm going to go see it. Yep, yep. We did. We totally did on Christmas Day. Um, so I, I think we're, we're, I think we're, I mean, I, this feels a bit redundant, but I think we're at the end. So do you have any, any final thoughts and, and answers to the question, should the Silence of the Lambs be in the book? Oh, of course it should. 100%. As I, as I said a couple of times earlier in the show, this film is thoroughly a part of the cultural zeitgeist. It's not just a great horror or thriller, however you land on that particular argument. It is a great American film. Yeah, I, I, it, the, two, the two last things I guess I want to say before, before I give my answer is that it's so funny. When I, when, like, if you ask me, what, you know, what are like your, your top 10, 15, 20 films? I mean, I, I have my basic responses because I know what movies like live inside me that I just, I love. And like, this isn't one of them. And I think because it's not one of my absolute, like one of my absolute favorite films, sometimes I'll look at that and I go, yeah, Science of the Lambs is good. I just, oh, it's good. It's fine. And then it, it takes watching it to go, Jesus. And then the, like, I... I go, this, this film is so close to flawless. And I know we even, we even had nitpicks we mentioned, but still the way that it flows, like what story it does tell, it, it just really works. Yeah, absolutely. This movie should be in the book. I mean, it fucking has to be in the book. It's one of those, it's a good old reliable. It's a dependable. It's probably the strangest comfort food, the, the, the strangest warm blanket you can wrap around yourself. But Silence of the Lambs, I think it's, it's always going to be there for you. And it's yeah, never going to let I, you down. I agree. I, I totally agree. Uh, and so that's that's what we think. It's two yeses here on the Science of the Lambs. But as always, we want to know what you think. So please hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. Start a discourse with us. Let's talk about these movies and how good they are. Or maybe they're not. Maybe you don't like it. I and mean, we'd love to hear that opinion too. Um, you can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. Just a little bit of money each month and you can pick a show that we talk about, uh, which would be great. You can listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher and Google Play and Apple Podcasts and all those great places. Um, and uh, please join us next week as uh, we talk about uh, one of the most important films we've probably ever talked about on the show. And, um, and we're, we're celebrating the month that we're in. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to re-examine this film because I've only seen it once. And I really only saw it the first time because you, you lent me a copy of it. Um, so until we get to this, this, this important film next week, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week.